Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, it, it is so refreshing to sing about the good news that you have accomplished everything necessary for our eternal salvation in Jesus and that you call us and justify us and sanctify us and glorify us by your grace. As I pondered this passage over the last few weeks, a scene in a movie kept popping into my mind. And you've probably seen this movie. It's an old movie. Some of you young people, maybe you haven't seen this movie. Sorry for you. You might see it someday. There's a scene in the Wizard of Oz where the Wicked Witch of the West is threatening to burn Scarecrow. She takes her broom, starts it on fire, and and she does. She gets Scarecrow's on fire. And so Dorothy, wanting to save Scarecrow, douses him with water and unintendedly, inadvertently, splashes the Wicked Witch of the West, who says, you cursed brat, look what you've done. I'm melting, melting. Oh, what a world, what a world. Who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? And so this was what was on my mind as I was studying God's Word. What does that say about me? I have no idea. Well, as you read through the text, I think you might understand what a world, what a world. As Paul describes the scene, he lets us know that our world is not a pretty place and it does not paint a pretty picture. With more and more opportunity for education and more and more information at our disposal, we would think that our world would be making great strides toward world peace, harmony, kindness, and quite frankly, just simply a better world. You would think that that would take place with all the information at our disposal. Just think about the evolution of automobiles through trial and error, new models, modern vehicles are becoming safer. They keep adding safety features. There's the the airbag, and then there's the passenger airbag, and then there's the side airbag, and then there's the the curtain airbag, and there's probably going to be a footbag soon. Like They've come with all these things. Design, trial, error, learning. It's getting better. It's, It's becoming more safe, is it not? It is. You'd think we could find some areas to fix the human soul. Through research and development, the world seems to streamline certain elements of production and cost-effectiveness. One area that does not seem to take great strides forward positively is our sinfulness. The world has not discovered the cure for what ails our soul. Pharmaceutical companies try to help people's anxieties, and maybe, maybe they help. Now, there are comfort dogs aimed to fix our brokenness. But it'll never bring fullness of soul. 
You've seen the comfort dogs, haven't you? I've seen several of them. Having the dog, it probably does make someone feel better. I don't doubt that. But it won't fix your soul. A pill may help you. If, you've been, if it's been prescribed and you take it, maybe it'll help you. It won't fix your soul. It can't fix your soul. There is no teaching, no therapy, no drug, and no animal that can bring about the wellness of the human soul. Only God himself can rescue the human soul and bring about wholeness of being. God is the source of true, lasting salvation. The message of the gospel is the way we come to know of God's salvation. The message is not the salvation. We don't cling to the message as if this message will save me. It is God who saves. And He conveys His saving work through the message of the Gospel. We're glad to know the Gospel. We herald the Gospel. We glory in the Gospel. But the Gospel is the message that reveals a God who saves. So we glory in our God Himself. This is, this is what God points us to. Our world, by and large, rejects the Gospel. And as a result, the world has continued its own course, contrary to God and His ways. Paul, in writing to Timothy, describes in some detail some of the areas of deviation from God's design. That's what we'll see this morning. What we will discover this morning is that without the Gospel, we have no ability to fulfill God's purposes for our lives. Now that may not bother someone. That may be fine for them. They don't really care too much about God's opinion, and so they don't feel as though that really matters a whole lot. But God's way for our lives is how we come to true joy and true peace and true satisfaction. If you really want wholeness of soul, wholeness of being, wellness of your body, soul, and spirit, you will find it in no other place than in God Himself and specifically through understanding the good news about Jesus Christ. As we look at this text this morning, we want to we look at it through the lens of the Gospel because the, it, the Gospel is is quite apparent in this text. Without the Gospel, the world has arrived at times of difficulty. Without the Gospel, the world has arrived at times of difficulty. Look with me, please, at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Other translations, perilous times torturous times, disastrous times. Why? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, 
swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. He tells us that in the last days, this will be the way it is. Now, the last days, properly understood, should be defined as the time between Jesus' first coming and His ascension and Jesus' return. Okay? So the entire time, from the time Jesus ascended to heaven till Jesus comes back to rescue His people, we could consider the last days. The Apostle John tells us that we are in the last days. Others have referred to this as Jesus' session at the right hand of the Father. He sits there until the Father makes His enemies His footstool. During these last days, there should be an eager expectation of His return. But those who are not rightly united to Jesus through the Gospel are consumed with other things. And this list that we're seeing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, as you read through it, as you meditate through it, they're very common practices. Common practices, and we'll, we'll see that. Without an eager expectation of the return of the Lord Jesus. In other words, He's not my treasure. Because He's not my treasure, I look to other things to satisfy myself. We find satisfaction or look for satisfaction in material possessions. Or prestige. Or sensuality. Or leisure. These, the list can go on and on. And remember, anything that can consume those who are outside of Jesus Christ can also consume us and derail us if we are not paying attention. We're going to come right back here because we're going to look through this list, but I want for us to set the stage by looking at a couple of passages of Scripture. First of all, Matthew chapter 6, as the Lord Jesus Himself warned His listeners of the challenges to our heart's affection. Our heart is constantly longing for something. And Jesus challenged you and I, as well as those who listened before us and those who will listen after us, Jesus challenged us to have our heart set in the right location. To have a treasure that lasts. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He tells us, he warns us, if you treasure earthly possessions, and that is the, the real driving force of your life, you will find yourself greatly dissatisfied because stuff breaks. Stuff breaks. Not only that, it doesn't satisfy. There's always something else. There's a new iPhone. There's a new Apple Watch. There's a new Samsung this. There's a new model of your favorite vehicle. There's always something else. It is a, it's a never-ending battle. You'll never have every temporal desire met. It won't happen. And Jesus warns us. Why? Because he's a good savior. He's a good master. 
He's warning us, not because he thinks, oh, they won't be devoted to me, and then I won't be the same kind of God I was. That somehow, I know that no one cares to say it that way, but sometimes the way it's communicated is like we make our God less if we're not better. Really, as if God's greatness is dependent on whether I'm great or not. Because if he's dependent upon me, I'm very sad to say he becomes diminished. The Bible never tells me that I'm going to make God great. It does, however, tell me to magnify him. In other words, give people a tunnel into seeing how great he is. My life can demonstrate by his grace the greatness of who he is. And this is what we seek. We seek satisfaction in other places and we find ourselves really broken. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. When he writes this, he's writing to believers. In other words, you and I, we know Jesus Christ. We know His saving work. We know the truthfulness of the gospel. We know that, that we've been redeemed. And God still warns us, listen, you can allow sin to be your master, even though I've broken sin's mastery over you. We need to be careful. Head back to 2 Timothy, please. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of another passage of Scripture where Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Folks, this doesn't mean that you don't care for your car. It doesn't mean you don't wax it. It doesn't mean you don't repair it. It doesn't mean you don't change the oil. It doesn't mean you don't paint your house. It doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean you don't take care of your body. None of that. The issue is, where is your heart's affection? Where is my heart's affection? When my car becomes my master, I have a real problem. Well, our union with Jesus Christ has broken sin's lordship over us, we can still succumb to its promptings. And so the question we ask and must ask is to whom will you pledge your allegiance? To whom will you pledge your allegiance? Back in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul starts off, the reason why our times are so difficult, the reason why things are so perilous in our day and age is first of all, in verse 2, for people will become lovers of self. The word there is philautos. Phil meaning love, tender affection. Autos, me. I'll have tender affections for me. Did you know that we live in the era of the selfie. I I, I took one for you. (laughs) I even tried my best to make the duck face. I don't tend to go around making duck faces, but I've seen so many of these wonderful selfies with the duck face in place, I tried my best. And by the way, take a look at that shirt. (laughs) I knew something happened while I was away. Sorry for those of you that that might hurt their feelings. Lovers of self. I like pictures, don't you? I don't like pictures of me. 
When I see me, I think, oh, please turn the camera away. In fact, you know, everyone does this. You get a, like a group photo, a family photo, and, and as soon as you look at it, right, you're looking for your daughter, right? No. Your son, no. Your wife, no. Looking for you. And you think, do you have like something hanging on your tooth? Is there something, you know, leaking out of you? No. You look at it and you think, boy, this is just, this is not comfortable. I don't like the way I look in this picture. Let's scrap it. And maybe you find one out of the 800 and you say, man, I look pretty good in that one. Everyone else in the picture looks horrible. I look pretty good in that one. And so we're going to keep that one. Why? Self-preservation. I love me. This is normal. This is normal. This is, this is, this is who we are. He moves on and says, lovers of money. Now he uses a great word. He uses that word fill again. Love, tender affection. And then he uses the word silver. Lovers of silver. Well, at least he didn't say lovers of gold. Like, I don't really want, I don't want to have a million dollar house. I just want to have a $250,000 house. I'm just a lover of silver. Oh, he used that term, though. If he had said lovers of gold, I maybe I'd have been all set. But he uses the term silver, which is maybe not quite as highfalutin as the lover of gold. Well, I think that might want to teach us something. It's easy to look at others who have a lot more than we do and think this verse is referring to them. The reality is, I think we all can struggle with this, right? Because we just need a little bit more than we have. We just need a little bit more. Now, there's nothing wrong if you have a job and you're working hard to want a raise. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, those are things that you expect over the course of time to have a, a salary increase. No, no, one, no one thinks that's sinful, right? But what if you get that increase and you're already on to wanting more? This is where our problem is. The opposite of loving silver is contentment and satisfaction. And so look at yourself, look at the world around you through the lens of understanding Am I satisfied? Am I satisfied? Am I content? He moves on. He says, proud. The word here means a braggart. A braggart. Having a need for other people to know how special or accomplished we are. Everyone needs to know how many little titles need to come after my name, before my name, all the things that I've accomplished in life. You see an email come in from a Navy person and they're like, they, they tell you, okay, well, this is my rank, and then they say they're from this division, and then they start listing all of their certifications. It's like half this email is all the things that are great about them. Now, sometimes you need to do that for a, form, for a formal thing. There's, that's part of life. You're in your job. You have to do these things. It's fine. But like, if you really feel this need that everyone understands just how qualified you are, maybe, maybe this braggart thing might, might be about you or I. He goes on, he says, arrogant, I'm more important than you. Now we come to an area of pet peeve. Help me, love me, even with my pet peeveries, okay? You enter into a crowded place, and here you are with your family of seven, and you're trying to make sure that you keep all of your little ducklings contained so that you're not taking up the whole aisle, not blocking everyone's way, and you're, you're moving forward. And there are other people doing the same thing, except they don't care that you're there. 
If you go to any crowded location, Haymarket Square, the mall, Shaw's, etc. I hope that they'll give me, uh, you know, give me something for having mentioned them on the, on the radio. <laughs> you go to any of these places, and people, they have no regard for you and that you're there too. Have you seen this? Anyone? How about on the road? If you're driving, someone, no, no regard for you. What is that about? I'm more important. I'm more important than you are. They don't, maybe they wouldn't say that. Maybe they wouldn't crawl out, you know, open the window, crank it down, or press the button. Hey, I'm more important than you are. But that's what they just did. This is the world we live in. Arrogant. Then it says abusive. Speaking evil of others. The word actually means to blaspheme. It's just to speak evil of others. And then he says disobedient to their parents. This is interesting. Have you noticed that our world thinks that children are smart enough to raise themselves? Have you noticed this? I only see a few nods. I'm like, please tell me you've noticed that our, our world seems to think that the parents should figure out what their children think is best and do that. It's just bizarre. This is a, a sign of the age in which we live. But being disobedient to parents, interestingly, is a demonstration of a lack of understanding that there is authority in life. It's very easy to under undermine authority constantly. Well, the politicians are stupid. No, you wouldn't say that. Uh, the police officers, they're against us because of the color of our skin. This situation is against me because of X, Y, and Z. You just undermine one thing after another. And soon, who's at the top of the list? Well, of course, I am. I know what's best. Well, this is Again, this is part of the dilemma that we face in our world is, is we think that God's ways are not good enough. We have a better way than he has depicted in the one book he ever wrote. He goes on, ungrateful. We could characterize this as people that think the world owes them something. Of course I should have free education of course I should have free health care. Of course I should have free income and free housing. And the list goes on and on. I just out of curiosity, where does that free come from? Somebody's got to pay for it, right? <laughs> come on. But this, this, is, this is the world we live in. We have come to perilous times, difficult times. Why? Because we don't see things the way God does. God says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. We say, if you don't want to work, we'll pay for you. Don't worry about it. Something's wrong. Now, there are people that can't work, and they need some support, and we are glad to help them. Aren't we? That, that's right. In fact, God was very happy to do that, and he told the people of Israel, listen, when you're plowing your fields, leave the corners for the people that need stuff. Make sure uh, every third year you give a tithe of all you have for those that are needy in the, in the world. Remember, Paul, uh, we, we're going to the Jews. You're going to the Gentiles. Make sure you care for the needy. We're not saying that God doesn't care about people that have needs. We do. And, and the church is supposed to be supportive of people's needs. But the world has taken this far, far down a road to say, you owe me. 
You owe me. Listen, I'd never go inside of a church, but I'll call you when my rent is due and say, hey, hey, could, could, you, could you help me out? I can't pay my rent. That's weird, isn't it? That's weird. Please think, tell me you think that's weird. Like, if you go to a church and you're having difficulty and you go to one of the leaders and say, I'm really, you know, I, I'm really working hard and I can't pay my bills, that's not weird. That's not weird. But to not go to church, any church, and to start making phone calls to churches so that they can pay for your stuff, that's weird. It's not weird anymore. That happens all the time. Why? Because this is the culture we live in. Ungrateful. Then he says unholy, without concern for that which is sacred. Heartless is the next one. Ah, that's a negative. Storgos, family love. Ah, storgos, without family love. Without the sensibility to love the people in your family. This is part of the world. Not everyone. There's lots of people that love their family. But one of the treacheries of this world is this lack of family love. Unappeasable. Unappeasable is the next word. It could possibly be translated unforgiving or irreconcilable. You like that word? Not able to be reconciled. They just can't get along with others. Um, of course, it's the other person's fault. <laughs> the, the, the word literally means without a treaty or covenant. It's very interesting. It's like, what, do you, what do you mean? They don't recognize the importance of, of dealing in normal, logical, relational skills. There's something wrong. Unappeasable. And then slanderous. Now the word here is diabolos. Anyone know hear a word there that you're familiar with? Demon, devil, diabolical, slanderer. It's what one of Satan's characteristics. It's one of his names, Diabolos. Without self-control. Self-explanatory, right? Without self-control. I'm, listen, I'm, I, I honestly, I'm not trying to be unkind in the way that I'm going through this list. I'm trying to understand. This is the world we live in. Um, the world oftentimes will call someone without a lack of self-control someone that has a disorder. I'm not going to say I totally disagree. That probably surprised you how I just said that. Um, when sin rules us, it's not a kind master. Sin ruling us is the worst disorder you can have. Now, people don't like to call it sin, but it is. A lack of self-control is when sin controls us rather than the Spirit controlling us. He moves on to brutal. Another term for that is fierce. And he says, not loving good. As you look at that phrase, not loving good, you can, can look at it in two ways. Opposed to goodness and or opposed to good people. Jesus told us that this was true about the world, that they love darkness rather than light. Isaiah told us this. He said that the world would like to call good uh, evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The bottom line is, we understand 
I hope you do, that God determines right and wrong. God determines right and wrong. He says treacherous. Treacherous. Now that's an interesting word. That's in verse 4. The word means a traitor or a betrayer. So the question that must be asked is at the, at the, at the end of the day, who are they betraying? The answer to that ultimately is God. What are they betraying? I think the answer to that is the gospel. It says that they're reckless. It literally means falling forward. I think a, a great way to picture this reckless is, is the guy in the boxing match that leads with his head. That's pretty reckless, right? I'm thinking if you're a boxer, you might want to get those gloves up and cover your coconut, right? You want to keep it from, from knocking the sense out of you. But if you lead with your head, guess what's going to happen? Ever see a movie about that? I think Rocky Balboa led with his head. Thankfully, it was a movie, and he was able to win anyway, right? If you do that in real life, you get knocked out. Leading with your head doesn't work. Go on. But the concept here is is a lifestyle that, that doesn't protect itself. Then he says swollen with conceit. I think that's similar to some of our previous discussions, puffed up with pride. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Let's pause. That's always the other guy, right? That's always someone, it's your next door neighbor that he's talking about. Not you. Not me. I would never love pleasure more than God. Or maybe, maybe it might not be right about that. Remember, anything that can befall those outside of Christ can derail us. And I think this love of pleasure is one of those things that we really need to caution ourselves that we are not playing around, playing games, wasting away what God has entrusted to us. Paul says in Philippians 3 about a group of false teachers, don't emulate them. Their God is their belly. Now, he's not saying that they really like Reese's Pieces or steak. He's just talking about the appetites of the human soul. This is, a, this is a pretty extensive list. And normally we don't go this detailed in this detailed a fashion through a list when it's like this in the morning service. But I really think we needed to understand what Paul is painting a picture of about the world we live in. What a world. Without the gospel, this is what we have. He closes this section out by saying this in verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Many of these traits that were just discussed are often hidden from others. We don't let people know the inner working of our soul. Often we hide them. Jesus spoke of the Pharisees in these glowing terms. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. In other words, you know, all the spiritual ones, they're over in this group over here, they might not be quite as spiritual as they appear because they might just be putting on the hypocritical mask. You know, so we sit around and say, well, here's a hypocrite, and there's a hypocrite. Here's a... 
Well, isn't that what the hypocrites do? This is not about figuring out what everyone else's problems are. This is about saying, okay, God, I see this list. I see these things, these, these, these elements that depict a treacherous time, a perilous time. And sometimes I see these symptoms in my own life. Why? Why do I, a pastor, a doctor of theology, why do I struggle with the things that everyone else that's ever been born except for Jesus struggles with? Because sometimes I deny the power. They deny the power, it says. Can't we do anything we're determined to do? Self-will can accomplish a lot in life. Self-will has accomplished and acquired degrees. Self-will has learned trades. Self-will has started and sustained successful businesses. But self-will does not accomplish the goodness of God. Self-will does not accomplish the goodness of God. It does not, and friends, it cannot. It cannot accomplish the goodness of God. What is the power for godliness? What's the answer, class? The gospel. The gospel is the power for godliness. What is the gospel? We'll do this very quickly, but it's all on bullets on the screen, okay? What is the gospel? All, all of my righteous deeds are flawed. Secondly, while I have failed to fulfill all of the requirements or the righteous requirements of the law, Jesus has met every requirement. Jesus, as the spotless Lamb of God, laid down His life as a sacrifice, the just for the unjust. This is a sin-removing sacrifice. Through faith in Jesus, believers have been united to Jesus Christ. In this union, His perfect record of righteousness has been attributed to our account. This is justification. The Gospel also empowers the believer to display the character of God as the Spirit of God enables us to live out the righteous requirements of the law. Romans 8.4 The Gospel rescues us from verses 2-4. through Did you hear that? The Gospel rescues us from verses 2 through 4, from being a lover of self, being a lover of silver, etc., right down the line, right down to loving pleasure more than loving God. The gospel rescues me. The gospel rescues you from the evils listed in 2 through 4. There are two commands in this paragraph, in verse 1 and in verse 5. First of all, in verse 1, understand this. In verse 5, avoid such people. Why should we understand? Because we can fall prey to a gospelless life. And why should we avoid? Because we can be influenced by gospelless living. Remember that Paul made it very clear that God did not tell us to shun every unbeliever. Otherwise, you'd have to go out of the world. What he says is, if there's one who calls themselves a brother 
and yet lives as though he doesn't know God and is not rescued by the power of the gospel and doesn't care. Don't have lunch with that guy or that girl. Why? Well, because they're just not spiritual enough for you. No, that's not it. Because a gospelless life from a gospel preaching person rubs off. And it's not the right way to live. So without the gospel, we have real problems. We've, it leads us to a, a world of devastation. The second element that this text points out, and we're going to do this very quickly, don't, don't sit there and panic. Gospelless people seek to influence others. Look at verses 6 through 9. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding, regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So, just briefly, they seek to influence others. When they do this, they have a game plan. If, if you're strategizing to go against a, another basketball team, another football team, another hockey team, what are you looking for? Looking for their strongest players and, and, and craft your game plan around their strongest players? No. You go to the weakest link. Wherever their, their most challenged part of their defense is, your offense attacks that until they can prove otherwise. You just keep going after it until they prove that they can stop it. So you, you go after the weak ones. Now, notice what he says here. He talks about weak women. This is not saying that all women are weak. That's foolhardy to interpret it that way. And it also is not saying that all men are strong. He just happens to choose one illustration. People run all over this and talk about, and say bad things about Paul. Just so you know, if you say bad things about Paul because you don't like what he said, who are you really talking about? Any thoughts? Is all, is all Scripture given by inspiration of God? It is. So if you're, really, if you're criticizing Paul, you're really criticizing God, I'm going to say that's not a good tactic. Go away from that one. Okay? Paul is not criticizing women. He's telling you what these people are doing. They went after weak women. Not women, weak women. A particular kind of women. Woman, They look for those who are burdened with sins. They look for those who are led astray by various passions. Listen carefully. They look for those who don't settle on the truth. They don't settle on the truth. It says they're always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. I want to, this is very important. I know it's been long and you're ready to go. But I've been gone for four weeks, and I have some things to say. No, that's not. It's been, uh, this is very important. You can learn the Bible. You can read your Bible every day. You can go to service seven days a week. You can learn all of the pamphlets about the gospel and be as unsaved as you were when you started the process. Why are they always learning and not able to come to the knowledge of the truth? Folks, listen carefully to this, this, this passage of Scripture. It, you'll, you'll remember it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
of the places, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You do not come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ just with information. You come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ when you realize that He's God. When you realize He's Lord. When you realize that God has the authority over your life. That He's the creator and sustainer of life and the judge. When we come to recognize that God is who He said He is and believe Him. When you recognize that the words that we read are not the words of men. They're the words of God Himself. And you come to recognize, God, you have a right to rule over me. I surrender. Maybe you've been at this Christianity thing for a long time. And maybe you've seen very limited fruitfulness. Friend, can I plead with you? It's not because God made a mistake. It's not because God is unable It's not because God is is not a saving, changing, transforming God. It may just be that you have not come to the place that you recognized who He really is. And that the message that He has proclaimed to you in the good news of Jesus Christ is one in which you need to surrender yourself to. When Jesus saves, you know. When God saves you, you know no one can make a fake replica of God's work. They can try. They can try. Jesus always calls it out, whited sepulcher. He he knows. I'm not going to go around calling people whited sepulchers. I'm not God. I'm not saying anyone. I'm I'm telling you and I, Maybe if we're not seeing the fruit that comes with God's salvation in the gospel, maybe it's because we have not come to this place of really fearing Him. I'm afraid, I'm terrified. No, no, you're God. I'm not. You're right. I'm wrong. I believe what you have to say. I surrender to you. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. These two men, they're not named elsewhere in the Bible, but Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, and they joined a long line of those who have opposed the truth from this, the beginning. Their, their, their life is depicting satanic rebellion. Remember this, corrupt minds and corrupt lifestyles cannot lead people toward faith in the gospel. Look what it says in verse 7. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. They are men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. The character of the man of God, or woman of God, who heralds the truth of God is important. You can see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, which was covered last week. Lack of gospel power always reveals itself in verse 9. It says, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be made plain to all, as it was with these two men. Now, you've seen many times where people that preach, their, their lives are not what they purport, purport them to be, themselves to be. They, their character comes out, and there's this big slanderous thing, and oh, look at this great man of God, blah, 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 fallen. Sad. It's sad can't do anything about what someone else has gone through, what someone else has not given into. Well, you know what we can do, folks? Rather than this, right here. Lord, 
Let, let the truth of who you are and the truth of your word be revealed in me for your glory. God, do, do supernatural things by your grace and for your glory, not for me. We, we have to look this way. Finally, in this text, gospel-centered people display God's power. You notice that the, the difficulty that Paul's life has gone through here. It says in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Iconium, at, me, at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Paul's life and ministry were filled with difficulty. And in the face of these trying circumstances, the rescuing power of God is seen. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Talk is cheap. We can talk about the rescuing nature of the gospel, but the gospel actually marks our lives. Listen, if you have a doctor and he's 100 pounds overweight and you go to see him, you're not sitting there think, judging your doctor but as soon as he starts telling you to eat vegetables and not eat ice cream, what are you thinking? I'm not 100 pounds overweight, pal. So we're not going around judging everyone for their... But I tell you this, if, if you want to represent God, and if you've been marked by the gospel, if you know Jesus, you're united to him, you want people to know him because you know that you've tasted and what you've tasted is good. You've tasted the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In this place that we live in with all these false promises that keep tasting like sand in our mouth, you've tasted something real and genuine. You want other people to experience that. If that's the case, our, our life needs to be demonstrating what our words are proclaiming. Paul didn't just speak about his teaching, but also his life. He says, my conduct way I lived, my aim in life, what was driving me, my faith, faith not in me, faith not in the church, faith not in a message, my faith in God himself who proclaims the message, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. These elements arise from the gospel's work in our lives. Or, better stated, these arise by God's Spirit's work in our lives. When we see God's glorious kindness in the gospel, we rejoice. We give thanks and we surrender to His Spirit and His Word. Listen carefully. The results of a life surrendered to the Spirit and the Word are fruitful demonstrations of God's kingdom that's displayed in the fruit of the Spirit. While the world continues to seek new ways to deal with the brokenness of the human soul, God keeps offering the same solution that He's been offering since the Garden of Eden Himself. Is that solution good enough for you? Maybe you've never tasted Him, so you don't know. Well, I can tell you this. He satisfies a longing soul. He can give you peace, when all about you is turbulence. And joy in your heart, in your life, in your soul, when everything around you is marked by misery. He can. This 
happens through knowing Jesus. His solution is good enough. You might not know it yet. I want to challenge you. I want to, I want to encourage you. Rather than just learning, 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 come to this place of humble surrender to Him. It will ir irrevocably change your life. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We want you. Those of us that know you, we have you. And you have not let us go. You will not let us go. Thank you for this. I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, that has not come into this union with Jesus, that, that hasn't come to the place where they recognize who you really are. We pray that you would turn their eyes upon you and satisfy them by your Son recognizing the work He's done in laying His life down to pay for our sin, to become sin for us, even though we knew no sin, so that we might be made 